Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 59. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie community Slack channel. Another week, another set of bad actors, malicious code, and compromised systems. We're back once again to talk about some of the cutting-edge intel being shared by our awesome community in the Lima Charlie Slack channel. And a huge thank you to all those folks that take the time to share their knowledge with the rest of us. As always, for these chats, I'm joined by the one and only Matt Bromley. How are you doing today, Matt? Hey, Chris, doing good. Glad to be here as usual with our uh, our Intel channel folks and just I'm just loving the amount of knowledge that comes through and stuff. Some of the conversations we have in there are just fantastic. I got folks DMing on the side as well. Like, have you heard of this? Have you heard of that? And it's just really good to, to get this feedback from everyone. So again, huge props and appreciation to everyone in our Intel chat and everyone in Lima Charlie in, in general in the community Slack. It's it's just been a really, really enriching community. And I'm happy to be part of it. All righty. Uh, let's get to it. I thought this first one was interesting to look at because it was pushed out as a tweet on Twitter. And from what I've heard from several researchers, social media feeds can be the best source of cutting edge information, assuming you get the right source. The tweet was documenting the return of the raccoon stealer after temporarily being disrupted. Apparently, a member of their team who was responsible for the infrastructure was arrested in October 2022. Following their arrest, the malware team decided to rebuild their entire infrastructure from scratch. Raccoon Impostealer, also known as Race Ealer, was first observed in April 2019 and is a simple but popular and inexpensive malware-as-a-service sold on the dark web. Raccoon's payload is a modular C, C++ binary designed to infect 32-bit and 64-bit Windows-based systems. Raccoon Stealer targets browser autofill passwords, history and cookies, credit card, usernames, passwords, cryptocurrency wallets, and other sensitive data, which is basically like every Impostealer. The operators of Raccoon Stealer provide client support to cyber criminals and their malware as a service costs only $75 per week or $200 monthly. I found the message posted a little surreal and that it reads like any public relations post from a company that experienced a major outage with promises of better performance and growth and a thank you to their loyal customers that believe in the team behind the product. We always talk about how cybercrime looks like any business, but it continually shocks me how brazen and open these threat actors are. How come we can't stop these guys? I know sometimes it is the country of origin that protects them, but is it really that hard to figure out who is behind these ransomware groups? Is it a general lack of resources or a situation where law enforcement has a pretty good idea who these folks are, but not enough evidence to make a conviction? Yeah, you know, Chris, this is a really interesting point because I've kind of wondered the same thing myself for a little while as well, which is why on earth can't we capture these guys, right? Like, what does it, what does it take? Because we know who they are, don't we? And, and that's kind of like the assumption that everyone operates under. And I've held for a long time that I think within a shorter period of time than anybody thinks, the the who, meaning maybe an actual person, is probably known maybe relatively quickly, right? Someone somewhere has, has got to have an idea of like, oh, you know, Bobby across the street is is doing this now and that kind of stuff, right? But then I remember, and I don't I don't mean to make it too bad of a comparison here. I remember that sometimes people will do all sorts of crazy things inside their own, you know, premises and no one, even their next door neighbors have the right idea and stuff. So I think in some cases there is a situation or an aspect of these threat actors being a little bit covert, a little bit behind the scenes and kind of building that trust network where, you know, Hey, I can tell my buddies where I'm more comfortable. My buddies aren't going to wrap me out to the police and that kind of stuff. At least it's not worth it. Right. And then depending on the type of threat as well, or the type of threat actor, then it's just straight brazen. Like, I'm just going to pay the police off. Um, or I'm going to pay law enforcement off because I know they'll accept the bribe and they won't come after me in that sense. And hey, who doesn't like to have a little bit of extra money? 
right? So I think it's a combination of, you know, being able to grease the skids a little bit um, in cases where we have kind of international law enforcement, where we don't have any, you know, corruption issues or anything like that. I think some of it just comes down to resources. And as much as I hate to say it, some of it also comes down to what's the, uh, you know, the, the, the damage being inflicted, right? There's much more damage being caused by someone who's performing perhaps maybe a kinetic operation or like a destruction operation or something along those lines. And that ends up taking, to your point, those limited resources, as as tough as it is to say, right, we can't assign one detective for every criminal that's out there. The other problem, Chris, I think you kind of pointed out is um, if I've got an enterprise, you know, if I'm running a malware or a ransomware as a service, malware as a service, info stealer as a service, whatever as a service, and I've, I'm hiring, you know, let's say, let's say I hire five people to work with me. So there's six of us total. Well, if any one of the six of us gets caught, the other five can just step right up and just kind of take over, you know, everything that we're doing here. That there isn't sort of like that old crime family style thing where it's like the boss has all the all the respect and the reputation and the clout and everyone else just kind of follows along and then you know a new boss takes over and it's a big deal right it's not like mafia ass like that dude if we're running ransomware as a service and one of us gets pinched i'm literally taking over the git repo and we're going to continue moving on you know it's uh it's it's it's, it's lockstep which is why when you see these takedowns take place they're very well coordinated. They're global. They hit multiple countries at one time. And it takes a lot to bring those things together. And I would argue, and I'd love for any feedback if anyone knows this and wants to hit us up on, you know, X or Slack or wherever wants to hit Chris and myself up. We'd love to get some stories behind this. But I would be willing to argue that there are probably some threat actor groups out there, Chris, that just go through normal types of like, you know, human conflict and like you know, conflict in the ranks and so-and-so, you know, has a kid and goes off and other person retires or decides they don't want to do it anymore. Or they get caught for speeding tickets or whatever. And by the time international police can actually start to build a case, the group's already been disassembled or something, or like a ransomware group that, you know, they made their money and then they're out the door and they're done. Um, so I think it's probably a combination of a bunch of different factors, but the biggest one be probably resources. We can't assign one detective for every criminal that's out there. So the moment I do two to one, well, now I've got competing time and 10 to 1, 20 to 1, 100 to 1, it then just becomes a goal of like, where do I prioritize? And a lot of times folks are going to prioritize on kinetic activity as opposed to digital. Not saying it's right, not saying it's wrong. It's just more of where priorities end up lying. And unfortunately, it means groups like this get a chance to, you know, allegedly, quote unquote, get caught and then come back again. And everyone's kind of like, whoa, how on earth did you guys come back from the dead to this? And it's like, we never did, the whole operation was never really taken down, you know? So it's a, it, it's a, Probably a combination of things and one that I should probably stop finding excuses for. But yeah, I, uh, I hear you on this one. Yeah, it's interesting, especially your comments about how we see the very highly coordinated ones that span multiple countries. And it makes a lot of sense why they put that effort in, because that seems to be the only real way to shut something like this down. It's the only way. And then the other the other thing I'll add on, you, you bring up a great point that national or international coordinated effort is necessary. But the other thing that's necessary as well is the joint cooperation and coordination with the technical companies as well, you know, to bring down, if I remember correctly, when Zeus botnet was brought down way back in the day, it took a lot of coordination with Microsoft in order to get that done as well. And I mean, you've got to coordinate, you know, from a digital aspect, the footprint and the, the footprints and the attack surface are so wide and vast that if you miss 
one chat, you know, one chat application, right? One IRC server, one underground forum. Like if you miss one piece, the thread stays alive. You know, it's kind of like a plant there or a weed that won't die, right? Unless you rip it out root and stem, you've got to get the whole thing out all in one spot. So it could be tough if you don't. And I think that's, uh, I think that's kind of what we're seeing here. Yeah. Your last analogy made me think of all the morning glory I fight in my garden. <laughs> there you go. See, <laughs> yeah, unless, unless you rip it out and get it out for good, it's going to just come right back. Oh, it's, it's unbeatable. All right. Uh, this one coming to us from Eclectic IQ. Their analysts have assessed with high confidence two observed PDF documents that are part of an ongoing campaign targeting ministries of foreign affairs of NATO-aligned countries. The PDF files masquerade as coming from the German embassy and contain two diplomatic invitation lures. One of the PDFs delivers a variant of Duke, a malware that has been linked to the Russian state-sponsored cyber espionage activities of APT-29. The other file was very likely used for testing or reconnaissance as it did not contain a payload, but notified the actor if a victim opened an email attachment. This one is interesting to me, one, because I find the way that APTs operate much more interesting than opportunistic cyber criminals, and because this is another example showing how these types of threat actors will test the waters. I think it was back at the beginning of August, we covered an APT similarly targeting the Ukraine's military back office. Instead of risking discovery by trying to deploy a payload everywhere, they use reconnaissance lures to determine who is likely to open attachments on these spear phishing emails before actually launching the campaign. Are these kind of water testing lures something that defenders should be looking out for? And is there anything they can do if they notice something like this coming through? Yeah, you know, I think this is something that defenders really need to be aware of. And what I'm trying to well, what's going through my head right now, what I'm trying to counteract is folks who look at a, a, maybe a spear phishing email and say something to the effect of like, oh, you know, the adversary forgot to attach the malware or the malware never ran. And then using that as a determination of success or a determination of prevention. And I would t- remind folks, take a step back and say, you know, in examples, just like we're seeing right here, execution of malware or running of malware or getting the user to click a file or run a thing may not be the goal or objective. It may be who's going to fall victim to this thing. If I send another spearfish through, who, you know, who's going to click through and how's it going to happen? And we see this happen with a lot of kind of multi-tiered or multi-stage phishing campaigns where there's a little bit of trust that gets established, right? If I have you click through an email, Chris, and I get a notification that you clicked, if I'm a threat actor, that tells me a few things. Number one, my email made it through whatever filtering you have in place, right? Maybe, just maybe, my email will get added to some sort of a safe senders list, which means uh, it may not be a, you know, and it may not be a hardware safe senders list. Like it may not be on kind of an Intel safe senders list, but it will be recognized by the computer. And I'll tell you, there's been plenty of times where I will email someone for the first time. I've never emailed this individual before. When I receive a response from them, or when I receive another email from them, my email client recognizes, oh yeah, we know this person. Doesn't make it safe, doesn't make it secure, it doesn't make it malicious either. It just says, oh yeah, I know who this person is, right? They're in that address book. So there's a couple of different reasons someone might do that. So the first thing that I think the vendors should look out for for emails like this is, oh, nothing malicious happened here. And it's like, well, that might have been the goal, but we've got to come back to that, again, user education side of things. Hey, everyone, I know we spend a lot of time talking about spear phishing. Let me talk to you about another type of spear phishing, or let me increase your knowledge and awareness about a spear phish of 
documents that don't actually do anything or a payload that doesn't actually do anything because we're looking for folks who are actually clicking through these things. The adversary might be performing, as you called out directly, reconnaissance lures to see who's going to click on these things. And I'm going to use that as another maybe additive to the user education as well. And what we're really doing here is we're trying to make it a little more difficult, a little more costly for adversaries to get into an environment by training my employees and just saying, hey, spearfishes don't always have attachments. Spearfishes don't always ask you for passwords or credentials. Sometimes they just are sent in to see what happens. Now, Chris, this is where we technically have to like insert a divide, right? So am I telling my users to never open an email? Absolutely not, right? Sometimes, very similar to if an adversary were to launch a scanner of my external perimeter, there's not really anything I can do about that. I, I know what's going on. I know what's happening. But there's nothing I can really do to stop that except for maybe blocking that scanner, right? But they'll just change IPs and go again. So sometimes the phishing lures or these reconnaissance lures are sent in, and they are literally just, will my email get through? So the response from there, from a dispense perspective, is not necessarily user education, but it might be tuning your email filters or tuning your email filter to look for these types of things that just may not make sense. But, and probably you could tell I'm getting towards this, in some cases, there's just nothing you can do. If an email gets through and it's a completely innocuous email, okay, it's in, right? We know about it. Watch out, everyone. We're on a target list. But there's really not much we can do here in this case right now, except look out for the next one. Get ready for the next step in this campaign. And that's where I'm going to ramp up user education. That's where I'm going to ramp up my email defenses. I'm going to say, all right, someone just fired a very innocent shot across the bow. I'm now going to watch out for the real deal to come through. Uh, Is this a case where having like an internal phishing, like a red team service running against your employees help to educate people? Is that the kind of thing that would help? I think for the second stage of this, uh, where an adversary might send an actual payload or a malicious leak through, I think spirit phishing, testing, um, user education, you know, internal kind of uh, different, yeah, you know, internal. I'm going to call it internal phishing testing and stuff, with, uh, with, or phishing simulations are very useful in this sense because they do give that kind of realistic, like, hey, you know, I'm from IT, click this thing, right? They get they keep users on their toes. At a minimum, how I keep my users on my toes and that kind of stuff. Uh, where it gets a little tough is, you know, imagine you're at a fishing campaign and you send through a fish, right? And let's let's say, Chris, you and I are running a fishing campaign. And the first thing we decide to do is send an email that does nothing. User don't click it. They just read it and just move on. And then you and I get back a report that says, hey, we sent it to 100 people and 80 of them read it. The only thing you and I are going to do with that list is send them more emails right? There's not really much we could do. And I kind of equate this to like, you know, you perform reconnaissance or an adversary performs reconnaissance on a target and they get back and it's like, oh yeah, you know, this, 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 uh, this target, this victim network has ports 80 and 443 open. And it's like, okay, I mean, that wasn't really harmful knowledge. I didn't, you know, no, no one revealed any secrets in giving that away, but I just have some more information about the environment or I have some more information about the place and I might use that for subsequent targeting later on or something like that. So, um, I, but, but like I said, the next stage would really benefit from email, phishing education and whatnot. All right. Uh, Malwarebytes is following up on something they reported on back in January, 2020, when they announced a tech support scam campaign dubbed Whoop Locker. That was in their words, the most sophisticated redirection scheme they had ever seen. 
In that report, they state that the threat actor was deploying infrastructure in earnest as early as 2017. In this report, they are stating that in the three years that have gone by, the campaign continues as if nothing happens. They go on to state that the infrastructure is more robust than ever in response to their attempted takedown. WoofLocker is being distributed via a limited number of compromised websites. It can be broken down into two categories, non-adult traffic and adult traffic, which actually sounds like all the traffic to me. Malicious JavaScript embedded in the compromised website is used to retrieve the WoofLocker framework directly into the DOM from one of a handful of domain names. The code used by WoofLocker is highly obfuscated and makes use of steganography, a technique that embeds data inside of images. Each victim that visits the compromised site is fingerprinted to determine if they are legitimate or not. Numerous checks are performed to detect the presence of virtual machines, certain browser extensions, and security tools. Only genuine residential IP addresses are considered, provided they have not already been fingerprinted. The information from victims is sent back to the server as a PNG image and followed by two possible outcomes. Users deemed not interesting will not see anything further, while potential victims will get redirected to another domain via a URL generated on the fly with a unique ID only valid for the specific session. This redirection shows a familiar browser locker screen with a fake warning about computer viruses. That part of the code is relatively straightforward and inspired by existing templates. Victims that fall for the scam and call the phone number are then redirected to call centers presumably in South Asian countries. This one seems quite different from a lot of the types of attacks we've talked about on the show in that, if I understand it correctly, uh, it is about identifying potential victims and directing them to call a number where they believe they are receiving tech support. Am I reading this right, Matt? And how common is this type of attack? Yeah, Chris, this is uh, one of the most convoluted, and this is not malware bytes at all. By the way, huge props to them for a really good, uh, really, really good walkthrough of this year. But this is by far one of the most convoluted types of redirection and adversary infrastructure, you know, websites are a serving. I mean, this is just really, really crazy up there with the elaborate traffic redirection schemes that they put in everything like that. I mean, look, this is, uh, you're right about the way that you interpret this, right? This is, okay, how do I best optimize the ability to provide call center scam or call in tech support scams to users and things like that? This type of attack is very, very common. Uh, it is actually, there's like YouTube videos and uh, TikTok channels and all sorts of stuff made about people who scam the scammers and whatnot. So, I mean, this is a hugely profitable industry. It employs tens of thousands of people around the world. And, and I don't mean to say it's a good thing. It it just, unfortunately, is, is big business and lots of money stolen this way. Um, where it gets tough is the level of skilled technical acumen that goes into building an infrastructure like this. Chris, this is another example where I wish I could say to someone, please use all those skills for good, because if you just made something amazing, we would be in a much better place right now. But nonetheless, it is still one of those scenarios where someone has determined, how do I get to my intended victims as fast as possible with as little hurdles or as little legal captures or as little legal obstacles as possible? And, you know, if you think about the kind of sliding scale of these types of attacks, there was a point in time where you would go to a website and you would get served a tech support scam and you would call a number and you'd be done. So then we implemented ad blockers, right? And that got around before we implemented DNS filtering or we implemented uh, some sort of video proxy. Uh, we implemented some sort of thing in the browser. Like all of these different steps came along to help mitigate this. Every step that came along, adversaries just kept getting more capable, more capable, more capable. 
And I think what you're seeing here now, Chris, is kind of like a Franken infrastructure where you're seeing just so many things bolted on that they probably work really well to get you to those residential victims of interest. But whew, if it's not a maze to unravel this thing. But I, you know, I, I, I don't want to give any credit, but to keep all of this up and running is a huge technical feat. Again, hats off to Malwarebytes for kind of walking through this the way they did. I mean, this is crazy redirection and all sorts of on-the-fly, you know, on-the-fly PNG creation. There's scripts here to serve up domains on the fly, URL redirection. I mean, all of this just for the potential that they might have a tech support scam. I mean, it's a lot of stuff going on there, but, uh, you know, hey, if it works and it makes money, that's that's what I think the adversary is looking for. They'll probably get something out of it. So similar to your question from an earlier threat actor, as long as it works and it ain't broke, there's no need to fix it from an adversary perspective. For defenders, there's a lot of stuff in here to digest and a lot of different steps to look out for. And some of it you may never see, right? Your users may never see some of this activity until they're actually served that malicious page at the very end. Everything else will happen on the server side, which again, is a chance for user education uh, or, you know, they talked about targeting residential addresses. I'm going to call this one kind of like general computer user education, which is, hey, Microsoft will never send you a pop-up from an internet browser that says, hey, did you know you have 137 vulnerabilities? Please call this number and we can fix it for you, right? Never happens that way. Educate people and hopefully we'll bring a lot of the success of these attacks down. Yeah, this one left a particularly bad taste in my mouth because I can't help but think the the most common victim of this type of attack is going to be, you know, someone's grandparent or somebody who doesn't have technical acumen and, and just thinks they're doing the right thing, but are being taken advantage of. Yeah, no, Chris, you're absolutely right with that. This, unfortunately, is the types of scams that go after like senior citizens, less educated computer users and things like that. And they scam them out of tens of thousands of dollars sometimes. Um, for anyone who's interested in kind of the other side of this, I highly recommend checking out uh, you know, YouTube channels like Kitboga and things like that, where they actually spend time to go and scam the scammers. It's a very, very pleasing watch because you get to see the scammers just absolutely lose their cool. And as much as I may not like to intentionally harm people or cause stress, I really don't mind watching some of these folks just absolutely lose their cool over, you know, scamming people out of tens of thousands of dollars or out of their life savings. So Hats off to those who uh, make a point to go after this. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, the report yourself files. That's right. That's right. So the threat research team at BlackBerry has discovered and documented new tools used by the Cuba Ransomware Threat Group. Cuba Ransomware, for those that may not know, is also known as Cold Draw Ransomware. It first appeared on the threat landscape in 2019 and has built up a relatively small but carefully selected list of victims in the years since. It is also known as Fidel ransomware due to a characteristic marker placed at the beginning of all encrypted files. Cuba ransomware is currently into the fourth year of its operation and shows no signs of slowing down. In the first half of 2023 alone, the operators behind Cuba ransomware were the perpetrators of several high-profile attacks across disparate industries. One campaign conducted by this threat group in June 2023 culminated in attacks on an organization within the critical infrastructure sector in the United States and also on an IT integrator in Latin America. The Cuba threat group, believed to be of Russian origin, deployed a set of malicious tools that overlapped with previous campaigns as well as introducing new ones, including the first observed use of an exploit for the Veeam vulnerability CVE-2023-27532. The comprehensive attack tools used included Bughatch, a custom downloader, Burnt Cigar, an anti-malware killer, Metasploit, and Cobalt Strike, along with numerous living-off-the-land binaries. 
I'm not sure what to do with this one. It seems like a lot of the same stuff we see all the time. Metasploit, Cobalt Strike. This should be stuff that defenders are already on guard for. Is there anything about what you read here that stands out or that was different? Yeah, so you're right. The uh, kind of eventual deployment always leads down the same roads. You know, Cobalt Strike, Metasploit, bring your own vulnerable driver, so on and so forth. Uh, the two biggest takeaways, I think, from these two, or you know, the, I should say the two biggest takeaways from this attack that I saw or the use of the two CVEs that were meant it. Uh, the first one being the net log on CVE, that's CVE 2020-1472. And then the beam one, as you mentioned, uh, CVE 2023-27532. I think these are, are some of the biggest takeaways here. Again, I've said it before, and, and I'll kind of reiterate again. These adversaries, you know, they have an idea of the types of targets that they're going after. There's a reason they're weaponizing the vulnerabilities that they are. And I think that the kind of first step that defenders should be taking is, you know what, let me go ahead and patch and close off these things. If you use Veeam backups or you've still got zero log on vulnerabilities out there, I, I really think that, you know, we're going to get in those patches and getting those things kind of shored up is going to be the first big step to take. After that, it then comes down to where am I defended against these different types of tactics and techniques, uh, whether it's loading multi, you know, vulnerable drivers, whether it's deployment of Cobalt Strike. I mean, this adversary was using you know, PowerShell scripting and basic command line scripting and a lot of abuse of run DLL32. And I hate to say it, but some of like the typical usual suspects, right? Storing files in C Windows temp, for example, uh, storing things in, uh, you know, using kind of a remote IP address reference. I mean, there's all sorts of kind of hallmark signs that this adversary is leaving behind that I think would be relatively straightforward to look for. And would be really good for detection engineers to drop in place if you don't have them in place already. And that is kind of maybe the biggest takeaway I've got for folks here. Don't focus so much on like, you know, the final steps. Of, oh, I'm going to mitigate the, uh, you know, the ransomware or, or whatever the final like thing is. But interestingly enough, I think there's a much easier earlier stage to catch these folks at. It's at their reconnaissance commands and their lateral movement commands and their privilege escalation and whatnot much easier ways to, to lock them up that way. And that's where I'd recommend defenders start with the CVEs and then with the command line operations that they're performing. Yeah. And that behavioral stuff that crosses different ransomware groups and isn't specific to any one actor. And that's it. I got to tell you, if you went through this Cuba ransomware article, and as always, a huge hats off to the BlackBerry team for bringing this together for us, the BlackBerry Research and Intelligence team. If you went through this and started to map out and defend against all these different tactics, you'd be surprised at just how many threat actors you'll catch in those webs. So yes, absolutely, I would I would go down this route of, uh, of, of kind of prioritizing things like this. You'll have really, really good cross-detection capabilities. Okay, so the last one today is coming to us from Sentinel-1, who are reporting a new iteration of the XLoader Malware-as-a-Service info stealer and botnet that's been around in some form or another since 2015. Its first macOS variant was spotted in 2021 and was notable for being distributed as a Java program which limited the attack service as macOS has not shipped with a Java runtime environment since Snow Leopard, meaning that the malware was limited in its targeting to environments where Java had optionally been installed. Now, however, Xloader has returned in a new form and without the dependencies, written natively in the C and Objective-C programming languages and signed with an Apple developer signature, Xloader is now masquerading as an Office productivity app called Office Note. The new version of Xloader is bundled inside of a standard Apple disk image with the name OfficeNote.gmg. 
I kind of feel like a broken record on the show sometimes. We've talked a lot about the increase in malware targeting macOS and other Apple products, which I think this is just another data point for. This could look like a pretty legit app to a casual user, especially before the developer cert was revoked. Is the lesson here simply to make sure all Apple software is downloaded through their official distribution channels? Or is there something else for defenders to learn from this one? I think one of the first ones there is uh, you're always going to hear me talk about passing on user education and things like that. This is a good example of, you know, hey, users, make sure you use and download through your official channels and your officially supported channels. Um, and for those of you who work in and manage Mac environments, this is where you're kind of, you know, your MDM software and things like that come into play because it lets you have much more control over uh, what types of packages are deployed and how users are using them. And I, I highly recommend, you know, utilizing those sources and those trusted repositories kind of first, number one. Uh, number two, I think the other takeaway for defenders here as well, and this is, you know, maybe a little bit more of an advanced takeaway, but as defenders are starting to get more familiar, Chris, with Apple-based or macOS-based threats, especially given the amount of time we've spent talking about them recently, this is where I think there's an opportunity to, to learn a little bit more about how adversaries do what they do, you know? Uh, Sentinel One blog did call out that uh, initial tests indicate that Apple's malware blocking tool XProtect did not have a signature to prevent execution at the time. And I think that's an opportunity to say, all right, well, let's, you know, if, if you and I were to replace Apple with Windows in this case, and I said to you, hey, there's a piece of malware out there that Windows doesn't have a detection in for right now, uh, someone would come along and write detection for it. And, you know, we had to learn how to get there. And I think there's a really good opportunity for folks to learn a little bit more about how malware is deployed on macOS and use that to their advantage as well. But really starting out with, uh, you know, using official distribution channels, downloading from the Ma Apple Mac store or MDM pushing or some sort of, uh, some sort of kind of central app management it is really going to be one of the key things here. Very similar to really any other tool or OS that's out there. Uh, we want to make sure that we're downloading legitimate software from legitimate places. So that's what I would probably recommend the big takeaway here. Yeah. Awesome, Matt. This is another great one. Thanks for spending time with me to go through this stuff and uh, look forward to doing it again next time. As always, Chris, it's a pleasure and a huge thanks one more time out to our Intel channel and the community Slack. If you're not in there already, we'd love for you to come join us. We'd love for you to come join the conversation. We have quite a lot of fun. We'll see you on the next one. All right. Take care. And that concludes episode number 59 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in, and we'll see you on the next episode.